1: Hello, my name is Ian Drake, and this is the New Books in Law podcast, and we are joined today by Aya Gruber. She is a professor of law at the University of Colorado Law School. She's a former public defender and a frequent commentator on criminal justice issues. She's appeared on ABC, NBC, PBS, and her work has been featured in the New York Times, Denver Post, and the Associated Press. She's joining us today to discuss her latest book, entitled The Feminist War on Crime, The Unexpected Role of Women's Liberation in Mass Incarceration. Aya, thanks so much for joining us on the New Books and Law podcast. Thank you
2: so much for having me.
1: So this is a book about, as the subtitle indicates, an unexpected role that women's liberation uh, plays in mass incarceration. There's a lot in that subtitle. So can you uh, unpack that subtitle to explain your thesis, and then we'll go into detail about it.
2: Well, yeah, let me start with the one that people are probably more familiar with, especially these days, which is mass incarceration. So I think people are, are realizing sort of widely now in the United States that our country has the biggest prison population on earth. Um, we have less than 5% of the world's population and over 20% of its prison population. That prison population is... Um, disproportionately people of color, men of color, women of color, Latinos, and African-Americans. And um, we just have an enormous amount of people under penal supervision. And right now, I think people are are really becoming aware of the perils of that, not just with the Floyd protests and the Black Lives Matter movement, but also seeing how coronavirus is ripping through prisons because of the unsanitary and overcrowded conditions. So that's the mass incarceration point. And I I, I really think that a watershed moment for people understanding the nature of mass incarceration was in 2012 when Michelle Alexander wrote The New Jim Crow. So that's what I mean by mass incarceration. Um, Now, the feminism part is a little bit trickier, and that's really what the book is about. What do these two phenomena have to do with each other? So, you know, I was a public defender a couple of decades ago, and I've been a law professor for 18 years, and I always knew that there was some connection between feminism and crime control politics, um, incarceration, prosecutorial uh, policies. I had seen them up close, right? Domestic violence prosecutions, sexual violence prosecutions. And I saw that a lot of feminist energy was going into these prosecutions. But I really didn't know why or the origins of it. I mean, I knew sort of how it worked. I had written articles on domestic violence court, and I knew how that prosecution operated in my client's life, life when I was a public defender but I really didn't know the origin of it or just how deep this connection was. So that was my inspiration to write the book, to really dig down, to find out what is the story here of feminism's contribution to this very peculiar situation in the United States of mass incarceration, this very unique American situation. Um, And I found out that you know the stories i'd been told about it well it's just you know a small part of feminism that asked for prosecution of gender crimes really the reason why feminists were involved in prosecution is that they were taken over by the criminal justice system well these were just sort of guesses and when i went back 150 years in the history of feminism in the united states i found this really complex interesting and deep connection between Uh, crime control, politics and policies, and feminist quests to achieve women's empowerment.
1: So you mentioned you were a public defender. Do you think that if you'd lacked the experience of being a public defender that you would have written this book?
2: I really doubt I could have written the book in the way I wrote it. Um, So let me go back to law school for a second, and I opened the book with this. I was really feeling this feminist sort of civil libertarian dilemma. So it was just two sides of my senses of justice, right? So on the one side, I was already by law school, actually by grade school, pretty against government programs of mass detention, because my mother had been uh, interned uh, with other Japanese Americans in a camp during World War II. So I already had this, this sense of you know putting the government to the test when it wanted to use military tactics against its own people and use, you know, sort of incarceration and the pain of punishment. But on the other side, you know, I was a feminist. I believed in equal rights of women. I believed that there was this uh phenomenon called the patriarchy that um, you know, kept women in in more of a second-class citizen situation. And, you know, within this feminist ethic, there was always this idea that violence against women, rape, domestic violence, other kinds of um, criminal violence against women was sort of the linchpin of women's subordinated status. So in law school, you know, part of being a good feminist was joining organizations that for example uh, aided battered women um was writing and researching on rape reforms this was all part of being a good feminist so when I decided to become a public defender during law school I, I knew that's what I wanted to do because of my anti-incarceration side but I really had this nagging dread of defending batterers and rapists and I actually wrote about it in law school I wrote about this, um, fear I had of of, you know, representing the real bad guys. And actually that law school article was excerpted into a case book and it's still around today, this this dilemma. So you know, it's plausible that without becoming a public defender, I, I would have written about this dilemma. The thing is, I never would have personally had my eyes open to resolve it without having actually seen up close, the operation of these feminist criminal law policies. So it was really important uh, for my development as a scholar, just at, for my understanding, to have been working in that system. And so I was really trapped in this um, dilemma and fear of representing, for example, batterers, so much so that I worried about uh, defending a guy charged with some sort of misdemeanor assault more than defending a non-domestic murderer. I was really, really dreading it. But then, as a public defender, I was practicing a lot in a specialized domestic violence court in Washington, D.C. that feminism had built. This was a special feminist court that took domestic violence seriously. And what I found was that it wasn't as much of a dilemma as I thought. This feminist set of prosecutorial principles didn't seem to be very good for women at all. Um, I saw prosecutors proceed with cases against women's wishes, even use material material witness warrants on them. Judges refused to lift stay-away orders, imposing de facto divorce on couples and separating families. I saw immigrant women lamenting that their call to the police just for help had triggered an unstoppable penal machine that made their partners deportable. I saw low-income couples of color lose eligibility for public housing because he now had a domestic violence conviction. So this whole idea that prosecution was the key to gender justice that I had held since really junior high, it, it was a connection that I had made in my head, and there was no reason to make it. I mean, one can believe in gender justice without thinking that using the tools of a criminal system, which at this point in time in the United States is not only deeply racialized, but also very like, unlikely to produce productive outcomes. Why had I seen that? as the key to gender justice, even though I was public defender inclined. So, you know, without practicing, I wouldn't have had that sort of epiphany where I said, wait a second, all right, this prosecution, it it doesn't seem that great for feminism. Um, So why did I think that? And and that really led to the book trying to dig down to the origins of that dilemma.
1: And that's the area of law that we're dealing with here. It's not just Intersection of feminism across the board with criminal law. It's in regard to sexual assault, domestic violence, uh, the broad rubric of uh, gendered violence, if you will. And so you have this experience as a public defender, but then in order to understand how we got to where we are today in terms of the rules that apply in sexual assault cases. You review the history, as you mentioned, uh, going back upwards of 150 years to the 19th century American feminist movement. And so explain how the history of uh, women in the law in regard to sexual assault uh, helps us understand our state of affairs today.
2: Well, it's really interesting because when you think about feminism, it is um, you know, a left progressive identity movement. It is, you know, solidly a movement that says we should question the state, hierarchical structures, and conditions of inequality in society. That's what it says. So how is it that that left movement has become so deeply entwined with a penal state that is really illiberal, that is really sort of based in you know, some very um, authoritarian uh, histories like slave patrols and busting unions and clamping down on free speech. And so, you know, I was really wondering that, like, how did feminism get that way? So I went back to the origins of feminism, which really came in the latter 19th century with the suffrage movement and the temperance movement. And both of those movements you know, and they were both also intertwined. Of course, the suffrage movement was for the women's vote. And the temperance movement was a sort of moralist movement about Christian values and um, purity in society. It was really sort of an anti-vice movement. Well, both of these movements were deeply concerned with a, a very real and troubling bind that women found themselves in at the time, especially um, lower class women, women without a lot of means, not the upper crust. They found themselves in a situation where the husband, uh, the working class husband would, would go to work and come home and drink and abuse his wife and impose uh, unwanted sex on his wife and also maybe go out and, you know, go to the bars and get drunk and go to sex workers. So just basically a a man who was treating his wife very badly that she couldn't leave, not only because there weren't liberalized divorce laws, but if she did try to leave, she'd have no economic means. Her only ability to support herself would be really degrading menial labor or perhaps prostitution. So this was a real problem for a lot of women and the suffragists and the temperance activists were very concerned about it. Um, But what's interesting is that their programs for criminal law reform got mixed up with the larger phenomena of the time, which included, you know, slavery and then Jim Crow and also social purity. So you take, for example, temperance activists, um, effort to raise the age of consent in rape law. So back at the turn of the century, or just before the turn of the century, I mean, the the age of consent was really low. It was like 10. So temperance activists figured that if they could raise the age of consent, they could stop rapes of young girls. They could also stop seductions of young girls where Um, of teenage girls where a man would promise marriage, you know, promise to be with them, then deflower them, and then leave them abandoned to a life of prostitution, right? So they wanted to really fight this harm against women, but at the same time, that was mixed up with really moralistic sentiments, anti-prostitution sentiments, anti-drinking sentiments, anti-sex sentiments, and what ended up happening was, yes, it did prevent a lot of rapes. But it turns out that at the turn of the century, you know, up through the progressive era, it was mostly young girls who were put in reformatories for having underage sex. So this anti-violence against women's program couldn't be really separated from that purity program, and it ended up jailing a lot of women, uh, mostly you know, lower class women of color, working class women. So that's one synergy it had that was very interesting. Another one was in the post-Civil War South, uh, purported fears of black male sexuality and black men raping white women were the ground for an epidemic of lynching and the terrorizing of freed enslaved African Americans. And so this was a very formidable tool in Southern whites' attempts to keep lynchings at wartime and slavery time uh, levels. And when a famous temperance activist, her name was Frances Willard, she was the person who really was behind these rape reforms. She went to the South uh, in support of these age of consent reforms and she really drew the ire of Ida B. Wells, who said, Hey, look, your rhetoric on rape and women and debauched men and bestial men is stirring up the lynch mob. And so Ida Wells accused this celebrated feminist, one of the most celebrated feminists of all time, of being racist, of you know, contributing to the epidemic of lynching. And in turn, Francis Willard, the famous feminist, Charged that Ida Wells was actually a sexist because Ida Wells was accusing white women in the South of fabricating rapes. So you see, back at the at before the turn of the century, there's this clash where feminists of color, women of color like Ida B. Wells, are telling the white feminists, you know, your rhetoric. Operates within these very racist phenomena, and the feminists are sort of shooting back, well, sorry, you have to believe all women. So today, you can see those same tensions play out, right, where you have Me Too and hashtag believe all women, and, you know, that's running up against some of the Black Lives Matter defund the police sentiments. So, you know, people are taking to the streets saying like, look, this carceral system, this prison industrial complex, it's really racist and it has a lot of pathologies. Um, And, you know, some feminists are rejoining, well, if we get rid of police and prosecution and imprisonment, what about rape? What about Me Too? What about hashtag believe women? So this has been going on for hundreds of years. And I think that understanding the history sheds a lot of light on the present.
1: So it seems that um, one one aspect or one theme, it's implicit, it's not really expressly dealt with in your coverage of the 19th century, is that positive law can be a powerful force for shaping the culture and the society. And that if only the formal law, whether it's federal law through prohibition, constitutional amendment, or in the various state laws and maybe even special laws in regards to sexual assault per se, that the notion of uh, changing the culture, the first stop on that or the first tool in the toolbox is going to be the the change in the formal positive law. Is that, do you see that as a theme or? um, I I mean, I see
2: see a critique of, of, of that theme. Right, like so, so that is a very common um, logic, sort of running through politicians' efforts to criminalize bad things. Right, so the idea is, if we identify, you know, whatever our harm du jour is, something that we think is bad, we need to criminalize it because criminalizing it, quote unquote, sends a message, right, that this is bad. So when we identify a pathology in society, you know, what we should do is throw some criminal law, at it, right? That that is such a basic notion that it's almost impulsive now. Like whatever you know, if if, if you know Hannibal Burris goes on on TV and, and and talks about Bill Cosby, okay, criminal law, right? From if there's. Um, you know, a report uncovering some, you know, pollution in, in a creek, good you know, a criminal law for, for the polluters. That is just a very basic instinct. But it's also something that is really a very deliberate product of a certain type of politics. And, you know, sort of in the academic circles, you call it neoliberal politics. But this is the idea that governments play a very limited role in addressing societal harm, right? And, you know, that, that's a philosophy, right? That's a small government philosophy, and it runs counter to sort of social safety net philosophies, socialist philosophies, or philosophies that give a more robust role uh, for the government in addressing sort of harms and inequalities in society. Well, you know, we really saw in the United States uh, a big shift towards this Uh, neoliberal philosophy of of governance, this sort of small government philosophy in the 80s. And and it's no coincidence that it went hand in hand with the war on crime, with the tough on crime movement. Because the idea is you would shift the narrative of social problems onto individual criminals and then say, look, the acceptable mode of governance in this space is criminal law. And that sort of recast poverty and the associated conditions of poverty, um, you know, racism and the associated conditions of racism, sexism and the associated conditions of sexism to a problem of bad, evil criminals that can be solved, that can be quote unquote solved easily with criminal law. I mean, there's nothing easy about it. But that's at least a very palatable political soundbite. So, So there was... Many years in the making of this impulse that when you see something bad happen, when there's an explosive media report on something, you throw criminal law in it. And that very act of creating the criminal law solves the problem. Right? That 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 was a, a very many political years in the making. And so I think my argument with, with criminal law, and I and I think you could extend this to many types of law, is that you know, this idea out there that just creating the law in and of itself is the solution to the problem. First of all, that's not a neutral idea. And second of all, it's not true. Law has so many different downstream effects depending on, you know, know, how it's put on the books, who it's communicated to, who is executing it, whether there's a backlash, you know, what is the population of people it affects that saying, okay, you know, um, there's rape in California. We will make rape a life offense. That will solve the problem of rape in California. It just never works that way. And yet, people and it, and it seems especially feminists have thought, okay, if I see some gender crime here or some you know behavior that's sexist, street harassment, you know, sexual harassment, um, sex without affirmative consent, what I'll do. To stop it from happening is make these really really long sentences um, that in fact reach very few people and they usually reach the most marginalized populations and and they're not great at affecting um, cultural change. Uh, if you look at if you look at for example Canada, they've had affirmative consent on the books forever, but when they do studies of how young people actually communicate consent to sex. They're not doing the ask and answer. They're relying on subtle signals. Um, So you know, you know whether that that affects a cultural change. One can be very skeptical of it. But at the same time, what you continually do is just ratchet up these sentences so that the few people that are caught, you know, for you know lack of a yes during sex, which which will be few, like most of those won't make it to court. They, you know, probably are the most marginalized among us. And they're going to get these exorbitant sentences. So, you know, throwing criminal law at something seems like you're expressing really good messages. Um, And in part, you are. In part, you're saying, okay, this is bad behavior. But you're not having the effects you want. You haven't been careful about how those effects distribute in the world. And you're also sending other messages, um, you know, messages about race. Messages about who gets controlled, who's in control. Messages about the legitimacy of police tactics. So I would say, yeah, this this idea that you can make this linear connection between identifying the harm to women and making really tough criminal law and that solves a problem, that's something that we really need to unpack because I think those kind of logics are what got us here to this ignoble distinction of being the country of racist mass incarceration.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
1: Okay, so you covered a lot of ground in that answer. And uh, when I was asking you about positive law, what I was going to get to was, you make an argument that individual responsibility for criminal actions is essentially, and you cover this through different time periods, but especially the 19, post-1960s second wave feminism and the legal reforms that were a result of that feminist movement. And I want to address that more specifically in a moment. But one of the Im- implicit conclusions or arguments is that individual responsibility for criminal actions is less effective in actually changing the conduct that we want to change, rather than looking at, quote unquote, root cause uh, phenomenon that are broader than just individual choices. And that seems to be implicit in your argument. In other words, you want a criminological landscape, if you will, that evaluates root causes for criminal behavior and understands the dynamics of how people actually interact with one another in the, in the real world, and an awareness that uh, formal rules or positive law does not yield necessarily the type of social landscape that we think it's going to. And therefore, we should expect unexpected or unintended causes or, or consequences. Is that right?
2: Right. I mean, I do think there's a legal realist strain in there. Like, just because you, you know, intend a law to reduce um opioid addiction say right and so you say okay so w- what we're going to do is we're going to make possession of an opioid a 10-year felony okay like, like you say that um and the reason we're doing it is because we want to reduce opioid addiction and opioid overdose deaths like you could say that right and and maybe you could even feel that you could say, okay, that that's what this law is for, um, you know, and then you can leave it at that. We we made some law, and it was to address a problem, but you know, I, I think it's very unlikely, just given everything we know, that that law is going to address that problem. It's 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 not going to work. So I do think that any good lawmaker, any good governor, has a responsibility to do the legal realist step. Right, You can identify the problem and you've got to be pretty careful how you frame and identify problems too. But but let's say you are, you've done a study, you've done a commission, you've studied the problem. Now you have to be extremely careful about how you're going to devise law to intervene. And, you know, a lot of especially federal criminal law has been purely symbolic. It's like, okay, we've seen a problem in the news. You know, and I want to campaign on on some law. Against it. And there, there's been no attempt to see who the winners and losers of the regime is going to be. Whether it really is going to have a deterrent effect. Whether it really is going to reduce opioid addiction and deaths. And you know what the costs of that program are going to be. Um, so I'm not saying never use law. Yes, you can use law, but there's this tendency with things identified and spectacularized as individual crimes and individual bad behavior to like automatically jump to the criminal law because of that history I was talking about and then not do a very full and good analysis trying to determine what the downstream effects of it are going to be. So I do think we need law. I do think we need governance. Um, But I think that if you're going to be a governor, if you're going to be the person who makes law or even like a feminist actor, who is, you know, banging on the table, advocating for more law in the space, knowing that criminal law is so seductive when it comes to crimes against vulnerable women, you actually have a responsibility to be accountable to understanding, or at least trying your very best to predict how this law will operate in the real world. And we live in a real world of racialized mass incarceration and over-policing and prisons that are themselves rife with sexual and other violence. So you have that responsibility. So it's not an exit from the law argument, although I, I, I you know, I could make that argument too. I could say that in some areas of the law, and I, and I make this argument with domestic violence policing, you could take all that money going to ineffective criminogenic domestic violence policing that hasn't been shown to reduce domestic violence and has landed a lot of women, especially women of color in jail. If you took all that money and put it to quote unquote, non-law programs, although I don't think anything is really fully non-law, but like alternate programs to you know give services and aid to the women, it probably would address the problem better. So, so yeah, and in terms of individual responsibility, I think that, that is a different question. So when somebody engages in bad behavior, fine. You know, uh, you you know, you might have been able to prevent that had you had some good program that, um, you know, maybe maybe gave them a different sort of option in life or reduced the social stressors that led to abuse, or you know, gave a better education. You know, there are a lot of ways you can prevent crime, and I think we think of crime as uh, more of, you know, being caused by individual evil comportment than, you know, it really is. I think that's part of that dialogue of tough on crime. But it doesn't mean that that people don't have also some responsibility for their choices. I mean, you know, a a murderer who, you know, chooses to murder, of course, that is an individual uh, responsibility. And I think we could, you know, go down the rabbit hole of talking about, moral culpability and what that person deserves. So I'm not saying that there's no um, room for some retributive thinking here for people who do bad things. What I'm saying is that this mass incarceration, you know, sort of penal system is mostly not about holding people responsible, deterring um, and preventing crime because it, it doesn't do it very well. But it's, it's, it's mostly grown up around other things, like uh, other things like, um, y- you know, solidifying racial hierarchy, um, being a very powerful tool to get people elected. You know, there's, there are so many other things going on in this system that I think it actually deflects from, okay, who really is responsible and what should we do with them? I'll give you an example. We spend a lot of time Ratcheting up the punishment for sex offenses, for even minor sex offenses, like misdemeanor sex offenses, you could put somebody on a registration for life, and then they're in and out of jail for minor, minor registry violations. So we spend an enormous amount of time policing in that space, and meanwhile, there's a backlog of rape kits with DNA evidence that could catch the far more culpable sort of serial rapists. We just we don't even put the resources to solving those crimes a lot of murders go unsolved. So if you look at where the resources are put, you know, sort of overwhelmingly into misdemeanor enforcement and street policing and managing people in low-income neighborhoods, I'm not sure that the criminal system really is about individual responsibility and culpability. So that was a long answer, but, you know, I'm saying that, yes, we should be skeptical about law, we should be skeptical about the dialogue of individual responsibility, but we should also be skeptical that the criminal law does any of the things it's purporting to do.
1: So let's fast forward to the 1980s or 70s and 80s when you identify divergence of views among self-identified feminists. And you classify them into basically three different groups. Uh, Sometimes you have slightly different descriptions of them, but basically you identify them as radical feminists, anti-patriarchy feminists, and legal feminists. So can you explain the the fissures between these groups and how it affected sexual assault law?
2: Yes, and and Ian, I'm so glad you asked that question because I think it really highlights um, that feminism is it's 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 like saying christian right it's not a monolithic thing there were so many different branches of feminism throughout history throughout the united states and they were often in conflict and they often held radically different views and so you know when you see which groups of feminists are sort of coming to the forefront it seems that a lot of times that the groups of feminists that dominated were in fact the ones that would embrace the strongest tools of state governance and the ones who would support criminal law. So I just want to be very clear that I'm not saying that every single feminist throughout time embraced um, the American penal system. It's it, They didn't. It. There were feminists who were wildly opposed to it. But what I am saying is that throughout history, we do see this phenomenon where dominant and powerful groups of feminists embrace criminal law, and this both serves to bolster their brand of feminism, and their feminism is also bolstering criminal law in that space. Okay, so the specific story about these three groups, and and, and to be sure, you know, the categories bled a little and there were more groups. We had what what you mentioned, the radical sort of anti-poverty feminists, um, anti um you know, racist, sort of anti-state, even feminists. And so they really came out of that late 60s protest sensibility uh, where, you know, very much like today, you had a lot of young people and students and people of color and women and progressives taking to the street to protest, uh, mainly the Vietnam uh, War, the burgeoning Vietnam War, but also racism, right? Civil rights protests and and many other things, sexism. And, you know, at the time, what you saw w- were these images, and and of course, you know, we didn't have YouTube and 24-7 news back then, but people also saw these TV images of militarized police forces really cracking down on protesters. So on the left, and even amongst more moderate liberals, there was this real uh, sense that the state was sort of warmongering, militarized, and, you know, you had— hippies of the day saying, you know, that the police were fascist pigs, right? So this was sort of the left sensibility um, that informed a, a lot of radical feminists, ones who were saying like, we should form these alternate societies totally outside of the influence of what they called the man, right? The, the state, the police, the violent masculinist police. And you also had these anti- poverty, welfare rights, sort of socialist feminists saying, you know what's really bad for women? What's really bad for women, uh, especially poor women, is this really cruel welfare system where if they need aid to families with dependent children, you send investigators out there to make sure, you know, there's no man hiding in their closet that can really uh, provide them income. You force them on birth control. I mean, you do all these horrible things to women who need money. So their whole idea was, you know, state's dirty hands, we need support from the state without them getting their authoritarian hooks into it, right? And so this was sort of one group of feminists that were calling for welfare reform, And really we're starting these battered women's shelters as these utopian egalitarian societies that would be like completely freed from this masculine, violent, racist state. Okay, so that was one group of feminists. And then there was sort of, um, you know, anti-patriarchy feminists. Really ones who thought, thought we need to fight these structures that keep women as second-class citizens within the workplace market, right? So I think this is what people mostly think of as like national organization of women um, and that second wave Betty Friedan style feminism, right? So women need to get out in the workplace and there can't be discrimination against them. And we shouldn't be stuck as housewives in these sexist, Marriages and and these anti-patriarchy feminists could also range from more radical, like lesbian separatists, feminists who wanted to destroy the entire institution of marriage, which they saw as sexist, to less radical feminists who really wanted equal opportunity in the workplace. So that was one group of uh, the second group of feminists, and they were slightly different than these totally anti-state, you know, socialist radical feminists. And then a third group of feminists, really, I define them by their practice much less than their philosophy. They might have been, you know, pretty anti-patriarchy or pretty anti-racist, but I call them legal feminists because they ended up being the most powerful feminists in the domestic violence movement, and they were legal actors. They were lawyers and victims advocates in court who represented battered women they were really the ones on the forefront, these civil rights lawyers, of suing uh, to force the police to arrest in domestic violence cases and force courts to um, you know, uh, issue protection orders and force there to be stronger civil and criminal law in that space. So they used the tool of law Uh, Mostly because they were there, but there there were also other reasons. And so for them, you know, they came sort of full circle from these radical feminists. For them, the state wasn't a warmongering, uh, you know, fascist institution. The the state, the courts, the official courts was the regularized system in which they practiced. That was their, you know, sort of the sea they, they swam in. So it was really, really different philosophies at play. And they, all three of those groups, vied for control of the battered women's narrative and the battered, uh, you know, once the battered women's movement got energy and some notice from legislators, those three groups also vied for the money, for the resources. And we see a real clash of those three groups. And, you know, there's two chapters of a story in there, but the legal feminists came out on top and criminal law and the pro-arrest pro-criminal law program, you know, really disproportionately got the resources um, and legal changes in that space.
1: Now, I want to ask you about the um, division that's normally made among uh, feminism histor- historians of feminism, which is between so-called difference feminists and equalitarians. How does that rather uh, familiar notion of the divisions between how women approached uh, political and legal reform and social reform. How does that fit within the uh, tripartite division that you've talked about between these radicals, anti-patriarchic, and uh, legal feminists?
2: Yeah, I really think that these groups, um, to an extent, crossed those lines, or those lines were less important than other lines. So, for example. You know, one of the things that led to feminism becoming so partial in the domestic violence space was early on, anti-patriarchy feminists squared off against the anti-poverty sort of anti-racist feminists. So the anti-poverty, anti-racist feminists were really, uh, really in that harm reduction mode. They were saying, look. You know, we're really concerned about poor women, poor women of color who are subject to violence. And what we think they need is money, right? An infusion of capital in their lives so that they can leave abusers or even an infusion of capital in the couple's life. Because we believe that domestic violence is produced by white supremacy and economic inequality. And if you took care of some of that in these neighborhoods, um, then you're going to take care of a lot of the problem of domestic violence that a lot of these marginalized women experience. So, you know, I have this, this scene in these very important civil rights hearings in 1978, where we have a Latina shelter feminist whose mother actually had been murdered in a domestic homicide by the stepfather, you know, like forgiving the stepfather and saying it was the white world that slowly and insidiously made this man an alcoholic and then abuser and then, you know, you know, led to marginalized people to annihilate each other. And, and she was very vehement that the problem was sort of these social structures of which patriarchy was only one. Now, did these anti-poverty feminists believe that, you know, women are naturally more nurturing um, or, or naturally more caring? I don't know. Right, that wasn't really their beef with the anti-patriarchy feminists. They were more in the mode of, of look, we really think this is a complex structural issue that implicates many axes of subordination, and we really want the state to concentrate on those, you know, not just on sort of individual sexist men. Right, that that's not going to solve the problem here. Um, well, the anti-patriarchy feminists, a lot of whom were sort of these sameness, you know, um, liberal feminists, you know, let's get women out in the workplace, you know, a lot of them rejected what the Black and Latina feminists were saying and the anti-poverty feminists were saying because they thought that the racial and structural theories undercut the idea that battering proved that the patriarchy existed, right? Right. So, so, again, a lot of them were liberal feminists, but you don't have to be a liberal feminist to believe that the patriarchy exists. So their argument was this. If we believe you, anti-poverty, you know, anti-racism feminists, that this is a function of these many things, then people aren't going to believe that there is this thing in society called uh, patriarchy that encourages men to be sexist. So we have to tell people, and we believe this, That battering happens across the socioeconomic and racial spectrum because it is a function of long-existing, entrenched sexism in society. And we are warriors against sexism in society, right? So we reject your other structural theory. So, you know, you could be a difference feminist. You could believe that women are more caring and all that and still want to prove that there's patriarchy in society. That's totally consistent with your views of, of, of difference feminism or you could be a liberal feminist saying you know like women should get out and and work like men to believe there's patriarchy in society so so the clash wasn't really versus uh, liberal versus cultural feminists so much as these other feminists who wanted to look at other sites of inequality and structures versus feminists that really wanted to point out the sexist behavior of individual men aided and abetted by tolerant laws because they really wanted to show that there was this thing called patriarchy that suppressed all women sort of equally. And, you know, especially for liberal feminists who you know, wanted women to go equally compete in the workplace, they, they really didn't like the welfare feminists because they saw welfare feminists as sort of cementing this, this, this motherly, inside-the-home AFDC role. So, yeah, there was that, that little fight there. But for the most part, You know, the anti-patriarchy feminists, they could be difference feminists. They could be sameness feminists. They're mostly white feminists. Um, You know, so it it was a different fissure between those two. And at the end of the day, um, you know, the anti-poverty and anti-racism feminists really fell out of it. Because after those hearings, you know, it was really cemented in battered women's advocacy that DV is something that every woman experiences equally across the spectrum. It can happen to the woman in the million dollar house. It can happen to the woman who was homeless, right? Um, And so that, what what Beth Ritchie, uh, DV expert calls that every woman narrative really ruled the day. And it was that every woman narrative that kind of directly eventually translated into the criminal law.
1: Well, beyond the theoretical disputes or outlooks of the different feminist groups, you also detail the battles that they engaged in with the use of social science data and how, in one sense, you don't use this term, but it sounds like they essentially they meaning either side in this battle will cherry pick research that fits the picture they want to present uh, while ignoring or even denigrating and sometimes personally denigrating uh, the researchers on the other side, researchers being sociologists and psychologists. So can you comment upon uh, the tactics that were used in trying to make these arguments?
2: Yeah, and I, you know and I think that everybody probably cherry picks, you know, I, I think we all engage in motivated reasoning when it comes to reading empirical studies, you know, in uh, fields where we have strong opinions. So I wouldn't blame for that. There's a really peculiar genealogy of those policing studies. So just to, to briefly go back quickly. So this this every woman uh, narrative where, you know, every woman got eventually imagined as a white woman who was subject to brutal abuse and wanted Police to arrest the man led to these policies, right? Of of pro arrest that didn't fit very well in other women's lives who maybe didn't want the spouse arrested or you know had to rely on the man for uh, money and, and 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 you know wasn't a rich woman who could get a divorce and child support and alimony, right? So anyway, so the separation and arrest program took over, and so you know these, these programs started as pilot programs and they were really, uh, pushed by, by feminists, by these legal feminists and their lawsuits and their advocacy. And in 1984, um, a, a, two, two researchers, uh, Lauren Sherman and Richard Burke, they released the results of a study of the Minneapolis police department. And it was a pretty limited study. It was about, uh, 200 or so cases. And what they did was they randomly assigned police, um, who were responding to domestic violence calls to either, you know, uh, give a warning to the guy, um, temporarily guy, I mean, mostly guy to the, to the accused, um, temporarily, remove the accused from the home for eight hours or or effectuate a, a full-blown arrest, like handcuffs take you down to the station, book you on charges, arrest. And they compared the efficacy of these three uh, types of responses at reducing future violence within a six-month period. And uh, Sherman and Burke found in this Minneapolis study that arrest was in fact best it it did lead to lower arrests for and self-reports when they went back and and tried to find the victims and do self-reported dv that these arrests did lead to lower incidents well this study made a splash in 1984. 1984 was the year of um tracy thurman's horrific case where she was stabbed 13 times in Connecticut waiting for the police to come enforce um, a restraining order. It was the year of the burning bed movie, which won Farrah Fawcett, this acclaim playing a serially battered woman. It was really, um, it was, you know, a year when Reagan put together uh, his task force on violence against uh, uh, his task force on domestic and family violence and made it sort of a signature, of his tough on crime politics. So this was a year in which domestic violence was very much in the forefront. And these preliminary findings of this Minneapolis study were released in the science section of the New York times. And they made the nightly news and they made this huge splash, right? So feminists in that space were elated. They were like, look, see, we told you, you know, uh, You know, police said said they weren't arresting because they were afraid it would escalate violence and make women worse off. And we always told you these police were sort of sexists who liked domestic violence, and we were right, right? So this was a very celebrated study. But at the same time as this study was being lauded, Sherman and various other co-authors, including Burke, were doing follow-up larger-scale replication studies in cities like Milwaukee and sit in Florida and Colorado Springs, around the country, and following up these cases in a longer period of time. And they were already, already as, as, as states and police departments were racing to adopt these mandatory arrest policies, already these replication studies were showing that the deterrent effect of arrest wasn't so clear. It, it, it was really a mixed bag and it seemed to work best in areas, uh, middle-class areas where the woman was married to an employed husband, right? Like, so they had some uh, greater socioeconomic power. Then that arrest sort of like was a disruption of the life and it could be that, you know, wake up call that the man and, and, and woman needed. So it, it seemed to have some deterrence effect in that space. But amongst poor communities of color with high levels of unemployment, it clearly exacerbated violence. Like it could increase domestic violence within a two-year period by 50%. So this was very stark and it was very clear. And the man being unemployed, like having that economic social stressor was a huge factor. And you know so the theory was when you're already really marginalized subjected to police brutality or arrests you suffer from racial discrimination and you're unemployed like just putting more arrests in your life just exacerbates the pathologies that make you violent right and so this really had an escalation effect in those areas and so you know by 1989 these results are out and by 1992 Sherman and his co-authors possessed enough evidence to say that Mandatory arrest policies, quote, make as much sense as fighting fire with gasoline. But yet, you know, this was a tough on crime program that was also a win for gender justice. And both feminists and policymakers were exceedingly reluctant to reverse the policies that they had just made in the name of women. And moreover, police now liked them. They liked them a lot. They didn't have to exercise any discretion in that space. They didn't have to try to mediate, right? They they knew what to do, uh, you know, sort of immediately. And so they didn't exercise discretion, which led to increases in arrests of men, but not as much as increases in arrests of women. If they were violent, well, we're not exercising discretion. We'll arrest you too. So these became very, very, very popular, and even though the social science was pretty clear and has been pretty consistently clear for a long time that, you know, for, for white people, you know, in the middle class, they're, they're a mixed bag, but, you know, maybe not all that deterrent. Uh, but for the most marginalized women who are subjected to violence at higher rates, that turned out that the every woman uh, rhetoric was not true. It's very criminogenic, and it very much uh, creates more of the pathologies in these low-income over-police neighborhoods. So that became clear. It's just that by the time it became clear, it was kind of too late. And for the last 20 years, I mean, there are just so many of these studies on the efficacies of the arrest program and whether they deter, whether they prevent violence, whether they satisfy women, whether they deter domestic homicides. And, you know, there's still a mixed bag. They still show that, yeah, they work for some women, some women like them. They really don't work for other women. Other women end up in jail. And one of the, you know, more shocking studies was a 2007 study that found a correlation, a significant correlation between mandatory arrest policies and domestic homicides. And the theory was that, you know, if you send police busting into that space against a woman's uh, wishes, arresting the men in these marginalized communities, she will learn not to call the police again. And, you know, she might be the most at-risk person, and that one time she doesn't call the police could be the time of the homicide. So there's at least some evidence out there that not only is it criminogenic, but it's criminogenic of the worst kind of domestic violence.
1: Well, we're almost out of time, but I do want to ask you, beyond the history that you cover, you also make some policy recommendations based on your assessment of the current legal regime regarding domestic violence, rape, uh, sexual assault, the whole broader rubric of male-female gendered crimes. And one concept that you address, which I found very intriguing, is the notion of the victim's Or alleged victims and alleged perpetrators, quote-unquote, convergent interests. So can you talk about how this uh, concept plays a role in your understanding of how the law should be shaped?
2: Yeah, so when you look at, for example, victims of domestic violence and women who have been subjected to family violence and violence in the home, especially if you look at um, women who suffer from discrimination and subordination on multiple axes, and you ask them, and which, you know, something that is so great is that we now have this body of social science uh, where, you know, I think they're treating the women less as objects of study, you know, um, you know, do these arrest policies, um, you know, decrease the incidence of violence against them, and then just sort of presume policy Prescriptions from, you know, those women as objects of study to using to looking at the women as subjects of study. So asking them, like, what what is it that you want and need? Asking the service providers, what did they tell you? What do what did they say they benefit? What seems to work for them, right? And so when you look at um, a lot of the women who suffer from this uh, sort of um, domestic violence, they also suffer from police violence. They also suffer from economic inequality, racial discrimination, they almost invariably have shelter issues. They, they find it hard to maintain a stable residence. Uh, they have employment issues. So you look at all of these things they say they need. One of them in the mix is I need my boyfriend slash husband slash partner to stop beating me or to stop verbally abusing me or to stop this or to stop that. And that is one of the needs they have, but oftentimes it's not the top set of need, the the top need, right? The top need might be, for example, authorization to remain in the United States, right? So it's not necessarily the top need. And so what has happened is this one need very much conflicts with the husband's, you know, desire to beat them, right? Which is a totally horrible thing, but the solution is to send in the police, to, to make them worse off in all these other needs, to make them potentially deportable. They lose shelter, You know, they lose the source of income. So what we could do is say, okay, look, like the men and the women in these violent relationships have certain needs that are really in common, shelter needs, childcare needs, money needs, visa needs, housing needs, and we can satisfy those needs and lo and behold, it actually might solve the violence, right? And, and these are convergent interests. Instead of going straight to the violence, with more violence, with police violence, and saying, okay, we're serving the woman because we're you know saying that these people are necessarily adversaries in all aspects of their lives. When in fact, they aren't. They just aren't, people aren't that sort of black and white. They have multiple intersecting identities, multiple intersecting needs. So that's what I suggest. And of course, it's not going to work for all women because some women are going to say, yeah, my number one need is this guy's arrest, is getting this guy out of my life. Yeah, and that is going to be what some victims want and need, right? But the presumption that this is every victim and what they want is police presence to the detriment of everything else, it's just wrong. So I think we could like just switch a frame where we say, look, we now know a little bit about the history of this institution of policing, prosecution, and punishment, and how it operates to sort of cement social hierarchies and exacerbate certain social dysfunctions. We also know about the current operation of this. It's too large. It's too broad. Police are, are pretty violent, pretty masculinist. Uh, oftentimes, there's racism in the system. Uh, we see that policing isn't rehabilitating anybody. In fact, it's it's leading to these massive collateral consequences that lead to more stressors in their life. So knowing all of this about the criminal system, my suggestion is that feminists look to it as a last resort, uh, to be used very sparingly, uh, to be used with a very critical eye and then look at the areas of convergence where not only can you improve people's lives, but yeah, you could actually prevent the crime before it happens and expend the resources there. Um, And in fact, maybe dismantle some of the programs that feminism has built that aren't serving women victims very well and take that energy and put it elsewhere. So I'm really speaking to the new generation of Me Too energized millennial feminists and say, you can deeply care about feminism and violence against women as I do and I always have without being in this dilemma where you need to really throw in a lot of policing, prosecution and imprisonment in that space. You can say, okay, maybe there's room for that in some limited way, but right now with everything we know and everything we see, we should look to alternatives that not only produce gender justice, but can start to produce some economic justice, some racial equality, and a better lived reality for the most marginalized people among us, including women.
1: The book is entitled The Feminist War on Crime, The Unexpected Role of Women's Liberation in Mass Incarceration. And we've been joined today by Aya Gruber, its author. Aya, thank you so much for joining us on New Books and Law Podcast.